0: You guys must really love Jesus to have come out in the snow. So encouraged that you're here. Thanks for being here in person. Thanks for tuning in online. I'm so happy, however you're joining us, uh, that you can uh, be here with us as we continue our study through the fascinating gospel of Matthew. Today we embark on a new chapter in Matthew's gospel. We're now in Matthew chapter 11, and today we're studying verses 1 through 6. And our theme this week is faltering faith. Again, our theme this week is faltering faith. Now, the reality is that even the most seasoned saints among us will occasionally falter in their faith. We all wish that wasn't the case, but on this side of eternity, this is just all too often our reality. We go through things, we go through difficult circumstances, life kind of kicks us around a little bit, and, and there are times where our faith falters. We don't give it up, we don't apostate, we don't turn away from God, but we do go through some challenging seasons and our faith falters and it's threatened to be destroyed if we don't come through this season successfully. I like the way one Bible commentator uh, writes about this. He said, When a believer has faithfully and sacrificially served the Lord for many years and then experiences tragedy, perhaps even a series of tragedies, it is difficult not to wonder about God's love and justice. When a child is lost to death or unbelief, when a husband or wife dies or leaves, or cancer strikes us, or a loved one, we are tempted to ask, God, where are you now when I really need you? Why have you let this happen to me? Why don't you help? And in these seasons, we're faced with a choice. Do we let the difficult circumstances cause us to abandon our faith, or do we allow the difficult circumstances to drive us towards God? And since most of us, if not all of us, will go through any number of challenging seasons throughout life, I know for me personally, I'm very thankful for the text that we're studying today. One of my college professors told me, Mike, if you ever find yourself in a spiritual rut, he said, go to the Gospels or go to the Psalms. Well, likewise, I would say to you today, if you're ever in a season where you're going through trying difficult circumstances and it's causing your faith to falter, turn to the passage we're studying today, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Let me uh, read it to you, and then with God's help, I will do my very best uh, to explain it, and then we'll make practical application for our lives. Here we go, picking up in verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. Friends, that's what Jesus did all in chapter 10, right? He gave them instructions before sending them out. And when he had finished giving them these instructions, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So just like he sent his disciples out to preach and teach in the various villages and cities, Jesus went and did the same thing. Verse 2. Now when John heard in prison what Christ was doing... He sent his disciples, the other gospels tell us there were two of them, to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, friends, this is how it is when we go through difficult circumstances, right? Sometimes we are tempted to fall away. We are tempted sometimes in our minds, if not out loud or to others, to friends, maybe someone in our small group, maybe, you know, a a spiritual mentor. We just kind of feel like, hey, God has abandoned me. He's not with me right now. He's allowing me to go through this. And, you know, we're just kind of thrown off. And the temptation is to turn away in those difficult circumstances. But in our passage today, we, we learn how to go through a trial. We learn how to experience faltering faith without having faith that fails. And so I hope you'll tune in and pay close attention today as we work our way through our text Here's an overview. I don't know if uh, you, like me, like an overview. I always like watching the uh, preview of a movie before I get into it. It really helps me. Uh, Truth be told, I don't just watch the preview. I go to Wikipedia and I read the plot. So I have the great overview. And then I always enjoy the movie more. It doesn't spoil it for me. It helps me to track along. Well, I want to give you that today for the sermon. Uh, Matthew focuses first on John the Baptist, all right? And he tells us three things about John the Baptist. He tells us, number one, about his past, number two, about his present, and number three, about his perplexity. And then Matthew switches his focus from John the Baptist to Jesus. And from Jesus, we also learn three things, or see three things. First, we see Jesus' pity, then his proof, and then his promise. Now, today, we're gonna work our way through the passage, and we're just gonna try to understand every little part of it uh, as we just work our way through And once we get through verse 6, we'll talk about how to apply this to our lives today. Once we work our way through the passage, then we'll talk about the significance of this passage for us. Now that you have the overview, let's dive right in. If you're taking notes today, you can uh, pull out that pen, open up your lesson notes. And again, we begin with the focus on John, where we see three things, the first of which is John's past. John's past. We read in the first part of verse 2, now when John. And Matthew here references John, the man he mentioned back in chapter 3. But here's the deal, over two years' time has passed since chapter 3, so we have to go back and remember John's past, what life was like for John over two years ago. And long story short, back in chapter 3, where we left John the Baptist, he was at the height of his popularity, and he is what today we might call a national celebrity. Take a look with me at the map. God's word tells us that people came to John from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Galilee, and from both sides of the Jordan River. So practically speaking, what this means is that the whole nation of Israel flocked to John in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, which we'll learn a little bit more about next week. There were so many people coming to John, in fact, that Josephus, a first century historian, records in his antiquity that the ruler of Perea, who ruled on the east side of the Jordan River, was threatened by John, thinking that the only reason he could have brought so many people out there by the Jordan River was for the purpose of a political uprising, So that's how many people came out to John in the wilderness. So do you see why I said, uh, today we might call him a, a national celebrity. John was at the height of his popularity. Now the question begs, why did people flock from every corner of the country and from beyond to come out to John by the Jordan River, even though it was inconveniently located off the beaten path out in the middle of the wilderness? And friends, the answer to this question is simple. It was the first time the nation had heard the prophetic voice speak in over 400 years. You see, when mankind sinned and messed up the good world that God originally created, God initiated a glorious plan of salvation. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see the promise of a Savior repeated over and over and over and over through God's prophets. God told Abraham, through you, a Savior will come. God told David, through you, a Savior will come. Through the prophet Isaiah, we're told that the Savior would be born of a virgin, would be the light for those who sit in spiritual darkness. We're told that he would open the eyes of the blind and make the deaf hear and make the lame walk. And we're told that he would rule over a kingdom that has no end. And then the prophet Malachi tells us that a God-sense herald would precede the coming of this savior. So over and over and over, what we hear from all the prophets is a savior will come to save the world from God's penalty that he demands for sin. But after the prophet Malachi spoke, the prophetic voice went silent in the nation, and it was silent for 400 years. Now, all during this time, the Jews longingly awaited for the time when God's promised Savior would come, who was to be preceded by God's appointed herald, who would come in the spirit and likeness of the prophet Elijah. Well, after 400 years of silence from heaven, the prophetic voice finally picked back up with John. He wore the clothing of Elijah, was preaching a message of repentance like Elijah, and walked in the literal footsteps of Elijah. So naturally, the people were wondering, could this be the herald of Messiah? So they flocked from every corner of the nation uh, to see, because if John was the king's herald, that meant that the king himself was soon to follow. So people flocked out to John to hear his preaching And he was just at the absolute height of his popularity, enjoying the good favor of all the people. But friends, this was John's past, and it wasn't to last. And this leads us to the second thing that we see in our text, which we're going to call John's present. So first, Matthew tells us about John's past. And secondly, we learn about John's present, which is very different than his past. Where we left John in chapter 3, he was at the height of his popularity, but Matthew makes it very clear early on in chapter 11 that John's circumstances had changed dramatically. We read in verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, we're going to stop right there. When John heard in prison this makes us the reader go, what in the world? How did John, the esteemed, respected prophet of God, who last we heard had a thriving ministry by the Jordan River, how did this John end up in prison? And friends, we'll get to this more when we get to chapter 14, but just a real quick overview, here's how it happened. Here's how we went from the height of popularity to the depths of a dungeonous prison. On a trip to Rome, Herod Antipas, who was the Roman governor of Galilee, had taken a liking to his sister-in-law, Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So while in Rome, Herod seduced Herodias. And when he returned to Galilee, Herod divorced his own wife, stole Herodias from his brother Philip, and married her. Now, it's like Jerry Springer, right? Right there in the Bible. Now, when John the Baptist heard of what Herod had done, John publicly confronted Herod with his sin, and as a result, he was promptly thrown into prison. Herod had actually desired to put John to death, but the people held that John was a prophet, and Herod knew, kill the prophet, be killed yourself. And so instead of putting him to death like he wanted to, he instead imprisoned John. Now, John was imprisoned at an old fort at Machairus, located in a hot and desolate region southeast of the Dead Sea. He was placed in a dark, stifling dungeon that was little more than a pit. So after 18 months of uh, living in the limelight and being respected throughout the nation, this free spirit of the wilderness was confined and isolated in a prison dungeon. Now, put yourself in John's sandals for just a moment. How difficult must this have been for John? As one commentator uh, put it, he was the child of the desert. All his life he had lived in wide open spaces, with the clean wind on his face and the spacious vault of the sky for his roof. And now he was confined within the four narrow walls of an underground dungeon. For a man like John who had probably never lived in a house, this must have been an agony, right? And that's the understatement of the century. must have been absolutely awful for John. And friends, where our story picks up today, John has been rotting away in this prison for about one year's time. So from the height of popularity into this Dungeness prison, uh, and now he's been rotting away for a year And that's where our story picks up. So this leads to the third thing we see in our text about John, which we're going to call John's perplexity. John's perplexity. Life has not turned out how John thought it would. The last thing John ever thought for himself is that his life would end in prison where he would eventually be beheaded. So John is perplexed. John had faithfully served the Lord, right? I mean, God had told him, be the voice that announces to the nation the arrival of their Messiah. God had told John to prepare the people, spiritually speaking, for the arrival of the promised Savior. And John had done exactly what God had told him to do. He tirelessly worked to prepare the people, calling the people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And now it seemed that the reward for his faithfulness to God was prison and shame and hunger and physical torment and confusion and loneliness. But friends, as as perplexed as John was about his life circumstances, he was doubly perplexed by Jesus and his ministry. You see, the Jews had certain expectations of Messiah, and that included John. The Jews read in the scriptures that Messiah would rule over an eternal kingdom, which is absolutely correct. That's what's taught in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So, So they just expected that Messiah would come, overthrow Rome, and establish his kingdom. But listen, when in John chapter 6, the people tried to crown Jesus king after he miraculously fed the multitude, get this, Jesus turn down the crown and you just cannot even understand i can't understand just how much this went against everything the people believed that messiah would do when he came what john and everyone else failed to realize was that the establishment of messiah's kingdom would happen at the time of his second coming not his first I mean, before Jesus could establish his earthly kingdom, he first had to die for the sins of the world so that his kingdom could be populated with citizens, right? But the Jews of John's day didn't realize this, nor did John. So John wondered if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, as I've always thought him to be, then why in the world would he refuse to be crowned king? Over two years earlier, John had so confidently given testimony about Jesus to the droves of people who had flocked out to him in the wilderness. When Jesus walked by, John pointed to Jesus and he said, Look, everybody, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So over two years earlier, John wasn't confused in any way, shape, or form concerning who Jesus was. He was the promised Messiah. But now, in his perplexed state, he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? You see, John's faith at this point was faltering. It happens to us today. It happened to John back then. Now, to be clear, John had not abandoned his faith. As we're going to learn next week, Jesus says to the crowds of John the Baptist that he was the greatest man ever to be born of men. So John hadn't abandoned the faith, otherwise Jesus never would have given him that amazing testimonial. He hadn't abandoned his faith, but his faith had become weakened by both the perplexing circumstances of his life as well as the perplexing ministry of Jesus, one that would turn down the crown. So we see John's perplexity. Friends, as we continue in our text, the focus now shifts from John to Jesus. Matthew has shown us three things about John. He's shown us about John's past. He was popular. He's shown us about John's present. He's in prison. And he's shown us about John's perplexity. He's just so confused to the point that his faith is faltering. But now Matthew switches the focus from John to Jesus. And again, we see three things about Jesus the first of which we're going to call Jesus's pity. Jesus's pity. Now, normally our points are derived from what we see in the text. But I just want to let you know right up front that this point is derived from what we don't see in the text. What I want us to note together is this. When John doubted, when his faith faltered, when he due to discouraging circumstances, got to the place where he was questioning, Jesus, are you the one that I've always actually believed you to be? I want us to know together that Jesus did not rip into him. We don't see Jesus excoriating John. And friends, let me be clear that Jesus had every right to do so. I mean, after all, who was it that baptized Jesus? John. And what happened after Jesus rose up out of the water? Everyone there heard the audible voice, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So understand when John's faith faltered, Jesus could have just blasted him and said, how can you doubt who I am? You heard from God the Father himself who I am. I'm the son of God. I'm the savior of the world. God the Father himself told you this. So how could you doubt? Or Jesus could have said, John, don't you know that Messiah came to fulfill prophecies and haven't I fulfilled every single prophecy that was foretold about me? Or Jesus could have said this, John, haven't I performed all the specific miracles that Messiah was supposed to do when he came on the scene? John, how could you doubt? And friends, this is just not the response that Jesus had. As we see, as we continue through our passage, Jesus responds to John very compassionately, just as Jesus will later do with the one we've dubbed um, uh, Doubting Thomas. When we get to John's gospel there in chapter 20, 21, thereabouts, uh, Thomas is doubting that Jesus really rose from the dead and Jesus doesn't come in and blast him. He says, Thomas, look at my hands, look at my side, stop doubting and believe. And friends, this is the picture we get in scripture of how God feels when we doubt. Yes, he could blast us, but instead he comes alongside of us and deals with us very compassionately. I think he knows that we're just uh, flesh and blood and that we go through uh, difficult circumstances in life. I think he knows how hard it is to live on this side of eternity because guess what? He came to earth and took on flesh and he experienced it for himself. So we have a high priest who's not unsympathetic to everything that we go through because he himself went through uh, difficult seasons himself. So, friends, the first thing we see then is Jesus' pity. He doesn't blast John because his faith was faltering. And that encourages us so much because we know that he doesn't blast us either. All right, number two. Uh, Secondly, we note what we're going to call Jesus' proof. Jesus' proof. John had sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you The expected one, or should we expect someone else? So the question at hand is this, Jesus, are you the Messiah? I've always believed you to be the Messiah, but is this the case? Jesus, was I wrong? And in response to John's question, Jesus gives what we could call proof of his true identity. And Jesus actually answers the question in word and in deed. And this is where it's beautiful that we have multiple gospels so that we can get the complete story of what happened by looking at each gospel writer's account of this event. So here's what's great. In Luke's gospel, we get a very awesome detail that Matthew doesn't include. So when John's disciples came to Jesus, uh, here's what Jesus did initially. He answered John's question indeed. So take a look when they came to him. We read this in Luke chapter 7, verse 21. In that hour, the idea is at the very moment, John's disciples came to Jesus and asked him, uh, are you the Messiah? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Now friends, that last part is very, very important. On many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Let me remind you that in the Old Testament, God held off on performing certain miracles. For example, we have no record of God healing the deaf in the Old Testament. We have no record of God healing the lame. We have no record of God healing the mute. And we have no record of God healing the blind either. God held off on performing these specific miracles. Because he was saving them specially for the Messiah to perform when he came so that Messiah's identity uh, would be unmistakable. So if you're following me then, in response to John's question, are you the Messiah, Jesus performs the very miracles specially reserved for Messiah. And now that he's answered John's question uh, indeed, now he answers John's question in word. And that's what we see in verses four to five. Jesus says to the two men that John had sent to him, he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. So not only was Jesus doing the very miracles specially reserved for Messiah, he was also doing the very things that only God the Father did in the Old Testament such as cleansing the leper and raising the dead. So you see, in response to John's question, Jesus offers the proof of his true identity. Using Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 to 19, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, and Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, Jesus paints a scriptural picture of Messiah and says to John, in effect, is this not the spitting image of me? So he kind of puts the question right back to John. You, you want to know who I am? You tell me who I am. Look to scripture and you'll see. So friends, that's Jesus's proof. He matches the scriptural uh, portrayal of Messiah. Who he was, what he would be like, what he would come to do. Okay, now that you've seen Jesus's pity and Jesus's proof, let's thirdly and lastly note Jesus's promise. Jesus's promise. After he lovingly offers John several proofs for his true identity, Jesus concludes his message to John with this. He says to the messengers now, do not fail to tell John this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Since Jesus didn't fit the messianic mold that people had in their mind, many did take offense at his claim to be the Messiah. But Jesus here reminds John, number one, that he fit the messianic mold of scripture, even if not the mold people had in their minds. And number two, he reminded John that eternal blessedness would come to those who kept the faith. Eternal blessedness would come to those who were not offended and who did not fall away. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul. We read in Scripture of all the terrible troubles that Paul went through, yet Paul wasn't offended. Paul didn't turn away, just because his life may not have turned out the way he thought it would. For example, shortly before his death, the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, I have fought the good fight. This is right before he's about to die. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now, the idea is now, because I have kept the faith, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And friends, this is what Jesus is encouraging John to do. Keep the faith as to receive the gift of eternal life. Keep the faith as to receive the gift of eternal blessedness. And friends, now by way of application, let me point out that this is what God wants for us as well. He wants us to keep the faith despite adverse circumstances that might tempt us to abandon it as to one day receive the gift of eternal blessedness. Listen, I totally understand that difficult life circumstances tempt us to abandon the faith, but I want you to think about it for a minute so that you, like me, can realize that it actually makes no sense to abandon the faith when you're going through something tough. Here's why. Unpleasant life circumstances might tempt us to abandon the faith, but doing so would only ensure an eternity of even more unpleasant circumstances conversely holding to our faith despite adverse circumstances ensures an eternity without them so why in the world would we ever abandon our faith just because we're going through something tough so God wants us to keep the faith not fall away despite the troubles we go through in this life and I understand the question begs well how do we do this practically speaking Mike, that's something that's easier said than done. So so tell me before we leave, how do I do this practically speaking? And friends, that's exactly what I came to share with you today. We do this practically speaking by developing a faith that is rooted in Scripture, not a faith that's developed in circumstance. So if you're still taking notes, go ahead and write this down. God wants me to develop a faith rooted in Scripture, not circumstances. Guys, this is so important that I'm going to ask, would you humor me and would you just say this out loud with me? God wants me to develop a faith rooted in Scripture, not circumstances. If our faith is rooted in our circumstances, which are constantly changing, then our faith will be forever wavering, right? When things are good, our faith will be strong. When things are bad, our faith will be weak. And if that's the case, we become the very person the Apostle James warns us about. He who is like a wave of the sea, uh, blown and tossed by the wind. And if our faith is based on circumstances, that's exactly what circumstances will do to our faith. It'll just toss it all around and blow it all around the same way the wind blows a wave all over the place. And let me remind you that this is what happened with John. John's issue was not that anything about Jesus had changed. John's issue was that his circumstances had changed. Now, back when things were good, John was all, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, nothing changed about Jesus between then and over two years later when he found himself in prison. The only thing that had changed were his circumstances. And John, at this point, didn't have a faith that was rooted in Scripture. He had a faith that was rooted in circumstances. John just assumed if things are going good, then God loves me, he's real, and he's blessing me. And then if things go bad, though, then God's not real. Uh, And obviously, if he's not real, he's not blessing me, so why should I even believe in him? And so Jesus comes to John. Again, a man he next week is going to call the greatest man to ever be born of woman. And Jesus comes to him though and basically says, hey, you've got an immature faith. Let me help you develop it. Stop having a faith that's rooted in circumstance. Start having a faith that's rooted in scripture. And what does Jesus do at this point? He gives him scripture. He takes him to Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, and Isaiah 61 to say, John, you need to have a faith that's based on who scripture says that I am. And friends, that's the very thing God wants for us. If we don't have a faith that's rooted in scripture, we will always have a faith that wavers with the ever-changing circumstances that we go through. Friends, we do not decide what we believe based on how well our life is going. We base what we believe on the word of God, uh, which is the solid rock versus the shifting sand of circumstances. And here is what the word of God tells us about Jesus. I'm going to talk about this more next week, so let me just give it to you real quick here. Scripture tells us this, number one, it tells us that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that Messiah was supposed to fulfill. He was born where Messiah was supposed to be born. He descended from whom uh, Scripture says Messiah was supposed to descend from. He uh, grew up where Messiah uh, was to grow up. He ministered where Messiah was supposed to minister. And on and on and on the list goes. So number one, Scripture tells us Jesus um, fulfilled the prophecies about him. Number two, Scripture tells us that Jesus performed all the special miracles that were specially set aside for Jesus. All throughout his ministry, he made the lame walk, he made the blind see, he made the deaf hear, he made the mute sing for joy. And doing these miracles were the very way by which Jesus confirmed his true identity. Because this had never been done before. God didn't do any of these things in the Old Testament. Yet here was Jesus doing these things God said Messiah would do when he came. Finally, number three, Scripture tells us about Jesus that he did the things that only God can do. Jesus demonstrated power over disease. Jesus demonstrated power over nature. Jesus demonstrated power over the demonic realm. Jesus demonstrated power over sin. And Jesus demonstrated power even over death itself. Friends, who can point to nature and say, storm be stilled other than God? Who can say to someone who's died, come back to life? And then they do. Who has control over the demonic realm other than God? And what we learn in Scripture is that Jesus did the things that only God can do. Only God in the Old Testament made the leper be whole. That's what Jesus did. Only God in the Old Testament raised the dead. Prophets did it through the power of God, but only by God's power were the dead raised to life in the Old Testament. When Jesus came on multiple instances, he he raised the dead including himself after he died. And friends, this is what we need to root our faith in, the unchanging testimony about Jesus in Scripture. Because you know what? Regardless of how our personal circumstances or fortunes might change, the truth about Jesus remains the same. He is the promised Messiah, and through faith in him, we can find forgiveness of sins and be granted citizenship in the eternal kingdom that he will one day, at the time of his second coming, rule over forever. And it's this hope, the hope of living forever with Jesus in a place devoid of sickness, suffering, disease, and death, that gets us through whatever it is we're going through. Friends, it's the hope of heaven that Jesus provides that allows us to persevere through the difficult circumstances of our life. Now, we are all gonna face trials in this life to differing degrees, but we'll all face them. And some of our trials will absolutely cause our faith to falter. It's not if it happens, it's really when it happens. And when our faith falters, we are going to be tempted to turn away. And when that happens, it's those whose faith is rooted in Scripture and not circumstance that will make it through. So friends, see, today is so important that you develop a faith that's rooted in Scripture. When our faith is rooted in Scripture, rooted in the truths about Jesus and rooted in the truths about heaven, Though our faith might falter at times, like John's did, our faith will not fail. We have every reason to believe because of Matthew 14 that we'll get to in a number of months, that John the Baptist was encouraged as Jesus taught him how to root his faith in the scripture. Because when John the Baptist ultimately did die in prison, his disciples came straight to Jesus. And the significance of that, of course, is that Jesus was still the most important person in John's life. So you see, John learned how to develop a faith rooted in Scripture, and it saw him through, even through a beheading at the hand of Herod Antipas. Friends, that's the kind of faith we need to develop. One rooted in Scripture, not circumstance. Now, that's the application for today, but we're going to end a little different today. Because as I was studying, I just noted how compassionately Jesus responded to those who were struggling. And friends, in a church our size, I have no doubt in my mind that there are many who are going through difficult circumstances right now to the point that it's causing your faith to falter. For some, it's causing your faith to falter a little. For some of you, you are on the brink of apostasy. Well, wherever you're at today, I want you to leave here encouraged. And so today we're going to close by me praying for those whose faith is faltering. Jesus doesn't blast us, making us feel even worse than we already do when we're, when we're doubting, when we're wondering where he is, when we're wondering if we're going to continue in the faith. He looks on us with love and compassion and desires to come along by our side. Isn't this what Jesus said of the Holy Spirit? He is our comforter. He'll come alongside of us. He'll help us. And by his spirit, he desires to help us today. So I'm just going to ask, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Those of you online, I'm talking to you as well. And we really don't do this hardly ever at our church. Uh, We don't do the whole like raise your hand thing. But today we're doing the raise your hand thing. So with no one looking just between me and you, I just want to acknowledge that that I see you, that I understand that you're going through something. And if that's you today, would you just slip up your hand and say, yeah, Mike, I'm going through something. My faith is faltering. I see you. 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 I see your hands. I see your hands. in all three services today, hands have shot up all over the place. Those of you are tuning in online and you say, what do I do? Hey, just write in the chat box there. Just say, that's me. And our online host will pray for you just as I will. I see you. 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 Let's pray. If you're not going through something right now and your faith is in a strong place, we'll praise the Lord. I hope it's because it's rooted in scripture and not just because nothing bad's happening to you right now, but whatever the case, if your faith is in a good place, would you just join me in praying for those whose faith is not? We want them to leave here encouraged today and lifted up and inspired to keep fighting the good faith and to keep serving the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today. Uh, We just lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who who right now are just having a, a difficulty. Lord, their faith is faltering just as John the Baptist did, just as Thomas's did. Lord, we find that to be our experience today. And God, right now, I just pray for those whose faith is weak. God, I pray today that you would strengthen their faith. God, that you would encourage them. God, that you would minister them in a special way today. That you would come alongside them in a way where they can feel your presence and feel encouraged and feel lifted up. God, remind them today that you're with us always, even to the end of the age. And that you're close to the brokenhearted. And that you save those who are crushed in spirit. God, I just pray that you'd encourage them. Don't quit, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. God, help them today. God, I pray for everyone at New Day Church. God, may they develop a faith that is rooted in the unchanging truths of Scripture, that Let us know who Jesus is. He's the savior of the world. And God, may the significance of that sink in to every one of our hearts because he is the savior and because we've called out for him to save us. God, we won't experience the penalty that your law requires for sin, which is death. God, instead, we have the hope of heaven. Our sins are forgiven and we are promised to one day live in a place devoid of sickness, suffering, disease and death, natural disasters and the like. And God, it is the hope that we have of heaven because of Jesus that we'll be able to make it through whatever it is we're going through. God, it's the hope of heaven that will carry us through. So God, I just pray that everyone here would remember who Jesus is and remember the glorious hope that they have because of Jesus. God, remind him today that everything we experience in this life, it is temporary. And one day the troubles of this life in comparison to glory, in comparison to heaven, will seem light and momentary and will forever be eclipsed by the glories of eternal blessedness, which Jesus promises to all who do not fall away and to all who are not offended by him. God, I pray for every person here that they, like Paul, would be able to get to the end of their life and say, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. God, sustain them and help them today to persevere right through the end. And God, we pray all this in the precious name of your son, Jesus, who died for us. Amen. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Mike. Well, we just talked about faith rooted in scripture versus faith rooted in circumstance. And I just wanna say, if you're one of those people who just raised your hand, I want you to take a second and look around. Look at everybody around you. If you're in the foyer, look around at everybody around you, all the volunteers out there, no matter who it is. And I want you to know that every single person here is praying for you. Whenever your faith is faltering, every single person here, the staff, the volunteers, everybody in this room is praying for you. So the next time your faith starts to falter, I want you to remember how many people are praying for you and remember that God is on your side and God will lead you It's that life of faith that Mike was talking about. But for some of you, you don't have that faith yet. So I want to share with you what our faith is in so that you can also root your faith in scripture rather than circumstance. So our faith is in what's called the gospel and the gospel means good news. But in order to understand what good news means, we have to first understand the bad news. And the bad news is that we're all guilty of something called sin. Sin is rebellion against God and sin separates us from God. The Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. It's a spiritual death apart from God. It's an eternal death. But the good news is that God doesn't want us to have to pay that penalty. And that's where the gospel comes in. God loves us so much. He created us in his image. He loves us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, down to earth. Jesus lived a sinful, a sinless life and because of that, he didn't have to die for his sins. But you all know that he died anyway. But he didn't die for his own sins. He died for mine. And he died for all of yours as well. And if you want to accept Jesus' death as a payment for your sins, all you have to do is ask him. Say, Jesus, I want to accept your death as payment for my sins. I'm putting my faith in you so that I can live in eternal life.
0: Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more, so be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.